Good morning. Uh, we are moving from 2 Corinthians to the Psalms uh, for this summer. And we begin with the very first Psalm, which would be Psalm 1. Yes, you guessed correctly. That's on page 448. 448. That's in the Bible that's in front of you in the chair or the pew. Uh, if you're not sure where uh, Psalm 1 is, uh, that can help you. <clears throat> You'll notice at the top of Psalm 1, it says Book 1. The uh, Psalms are divided into five sections, five books, probably to imitate uh, the Torah or the first five books of the Bible, another way to indicate that this is a continuation of God's Word, a continuation of His law. And another thing that underscores this is how Psalm 1, which, we will, which our title indicates is the front porch of the Psalms, deals with the law of God as well. So, the ray of the righteous and the wicked, verses 1 through 3, speak of the way of the righteous, though they're not mentioned until verse 5, the word righteous, um, and then verses 4 through 6, the way of the wicked. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous." But the way of the wicked will perish. That's the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Lord, bless us as we come to this, your word. The spirit that gave it, Lord, may he attend us and enable us to enwrap our lives around this. For it to filter into our lives. For it to nourish us even as the water nourishes the tree, Lord. Uh, may we plant ourselves next to your life-giving stream of your word, even now, that we may bear much fruit to your glory. Amen. So, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, actually, are the front porch to the whole of the Psalms. Uh, they're like the uh, introduction or co- uh, constitute this portal into the Psalms. Uh, kind of a bridge into the world of the Psalms. And what is Psalm 1 telling us as we enter into the Word? It tells us that one who truly worships God truly delights in His Word. That true worshipers delight in the very Word of God. They delight to follow that word as well. So, true worshipers bring hearts 
that are submitting to God's authority and his wisdom. And the indication is if there is no delight in his word, then our worship is empty. This is the front porch, right? (laughs) This is before you go in. And so in that sense, the psalm, as several have said, is the gatekeeper of the psalm. That is, this is who is admitted into true worship. Those who delight in his word and meditate in it day and night. So the Psalms are kind of a literary temple, okay, as some have said. And so to enter into this literary temple, uh, you and I must be those who are giving ourselves up to the will of God. The short of it is... A life of disobedience is not a life that is engaged in the worship of God. And many times we can have this disconnect, showing up at church, even getting real excited about things that happen in church, and liking certain things that are said or liking the music or whatever it is. But our hearts fundamentally are far from the word of God. And we give it almost no attention in our daily lives. And yet, we come into worship. So, Psalm 1 stands and says, We can't play games doing our own independent thing, living how we want, and calling that the worship of God. If, if, if I am happy and self-satisfied with my supposed worship of God and my relationship to God, but I ignore the very word of God? How can that be? If his beauty is unveiled in the word, how can I propose to be wanting and desiring and worshiping his beauty when I don't really want his beauty? We can't ignore the authority and wisdom of God and think that we're worshiping God. Psalm 1 says, leave your hypocrisy at the door. Psalm 1 also says that worship will be all about that word. And as you know how Jacob and uh, us, we have structured this worship. That every part of worship, from the call to worship, to the confession, to the hymns, to the prayers, all constructed around God's word. It's filled with the word because part of worship must be that we delight in that word. And so every part of worship in some way is to display that word or help us uh, know more of that word. Because we are those who deliver it is the word of God. And the reason that's so important is I love the comparison of these two verses. Psalm 42, verse 1, says, uh, Like the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants after you. So there's this panting that we have for God. This should be the expression of worship, right? This panting and longing after God. Well, Psalm 119 says something very similar. It says, I open my mouth wide. And I panted after your word. Interesting, isn't it? 
that the same expression of passion for God is passion for his word. They're one and the same because he is revealed in his word. So, Psalm 1 stands as this kind of front porch to the whole of the Psalms. And in a minute, we'll talk a little bit about how uh, Psalm 2 is the front porch is related to Psalm 1. So, as I said, it's divided into two parts. Uh, 1 through 3 speaks of the blessed man. And then 4 through 6, the wicked man, described in different ways. But that's the basic division. So let's start into the first section as, it's, as it speaks of the negative side of his life. The emphasis in the original is not, 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 okay? This is what he doesn't do. And there's a, a you, you could call it a progression, but some have called it a regression here into sin so that at first, we're moving, then we're stationary, then we're sitting. That's the, the regression here. Uh, perhaps the idea of that one tries out sin, then he becomes accustomed to sin, and finally it becomes his habit or lifestyle. The way sin draws us in. So we listen and listening to advice at first, the counsel. Then we're joining it on a walk and then we're making it our home. That's the progress of sin. And as Kidner says, the sober choice, the sober, sober choice to refuse this counsel and this walking, this sitting brings you into happiness. A sober, difficult choice but that is what brings us into happiness. Because blessedness is basically, oh, the happiness. Oh, the happiness of those who say, no, 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 no. Very interesting way for the Psalms to begin. So, you and I have perhaps experienced this. How differently you feel toward the things of God when you progress into the several folds of sin. So that the relationship of verses 1 and 2 is those who refuse are also those who delight. Those who delight are able to refuse. And the more we don't refuse, the less we delight. And that's what happens as we move further into sin. Our heart is dulled toward the word and toward worship. It loses its attraction. Maybe it becomes boring. Then it's disgusting. Then it's laughable. And that's why where does he end up? With the scoffers. Not only doing sin, but mocking. Mocking the innocent. Mocking the righteous. So what happens is that these the things of God seem to make less and less sense as I'm enjoying my new reality of sin. And so the things of God 
no longer have this foothold in my heart or barely a foothold. There's no trace of desire for his word left. I have slowly, carefully been stamping out the warming fire of God's word. This also is a kind of parody of, because the, the wicked and the sinners and the scoffers are plural. So there's a kind of parody in the elders at the gate who give their counsel. And this is the dark parody of that. See, the dark counsel of this group of elders would be who are counseling you how you should live. And it's interesting that they're trying to immerse you in their worldview, as even our culture wants to immerse us in its worldview, in its worldview of immorality, for instance. And the idea here, too, is one person against the masses, right? It's not only this man who is happy, but one man against the many. And so there's the idea of the road less traveled, right? That's not so easy. It's not so popular. But yet, it's the way of happiness. It's the way of enrichment. So counterintuitive, right? So upside down from the way we normally think as we want to give in to the flow. So that's this first verse, and then he gives the contrast. And and really, this is the root of why he doesn't walk in that counsel. Because he doesn't take delight in their counsel. It's not attractive, ideally. Sometimes it is, but just saying as a general way of life. Because the Word has his heart. There's this contrast of their counsel versus God's counsel. And he delights in God's counsel and not theirs. And so as he, as he speaks of law here, you have to remember that law or the Hebrew word Torah is not just the pure law, the commandments of God, but think what's in the Torah, the revelation of Genesis and the creation of God, creating the whole world. Within the Torah is the story of Babel Babel, or the story of the flood, uh, the story of Abraham and God's covenant with Abraham, the many promises in the the first five books, or really law here is bigger even than that and covers kind of the whole majesty of the Old Testament in our context, the whole word of God. And certainly it includes the Psalms themselves so that we delight in God's instruction on how to honor him and worship him and cry out to him and depend upon him and cling to him as the Psalms are going to set forth. We delight to know about how we can relate to God in these ways. How do I give myself fully to him? How do I give him all that I am and all that I have and everything that I encounter? All my struggles and rejection and loneliness and worries and weakness and failures. How do I give this up to him? That's a part of his law. So his law is rich and dynamic. 
It includes his commands. It includes his grace. And in our context, the central part of that word is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so he says, and here's the hard part, not just read every once in a while, not even, though it could include this, study as, especially not study it as an intellectual process, but to meditate on it. Hebrew words means to mumble. It's used of a pigeon cooing or a lion roaring or a man speaking. It probably includes the idea of the congregation mumbling among themselves and speaking the word to themselves, which is kind of like the gurgling stream that we hear in the next verse. So that the bubbling water is in the congregation as we share and discuss and open up the word to one another and get excited together about that word. This is the place, you see, of the word. Or as Paul also, in a context of worship, says, let the word of Christ dwell among you, in your midst. Let it dwell richly in your midst. And here's the idea of the rich word, not only in a personal way, personal delight, but the delight of the congregation of which he is a part. And you know, you and I delight, or we meditate, this this saying the word over and over to ourselves and, and, and trying to get all the richness of it and understanding. We meditate on that which we delight. So there's a connection between delight and meditate. Um, kids, you love video games. So you meditate on them, right? You love to give your attention to them and you can get lost for two hours and your parents have to say no more than an hour. You don't ever have your parents come in the room, stop reading your biology and start playing the video game right now. You You don't have to do that because you will give yourself the video. Why? It's, It's delightful. It's wonderful. You can't wait to get to it. That's why we binge uh, on some TV shows, which Kay and I have binged as well on some. Why some of you speak of 24 as almost a sacred place, right? (laughs) House of Cards or Orange is the New Black or The Office, Arrested Development, whatever. We can't wait to the next episode. And we we have them back to back and we'll watch five. No, it's not. Oh, Three hours of one program, you'd think, oh, that's too much. No, it's not. You know, I'm going to lose sleep tonight. See the idea of meditation, of focusing on one thing and staying with it? Why? Because you love it. You delight in it. There's the issue for us. Oh, Lord, how can I bring about this delight in my life? How can I so delight in it that I want to give myself to it, that I meditate in it? And this delight, of course, uh, is a delight in following that word as well. Not just an intellectual, finding out some facts, but I, want, I love this word. I want it to be a part of my life. I have one friend who says, there's one tournament that every year, he watches from beginning to end, and that's the Masters. You know, like four days straight uh, Masters, all day, every day. 
That's what he's talking about, day and night. Now, we don't have the capacity. We don't have the opportunity for day and night. But you get the idea. It's a constant uh, putting ourselves in this word. And what's the result? Well, this beautiful, beautiful picture. In fact, this is where Psalm 1 begins. A picture. A picture of a tree. Worship begins with a tree by the water. That's where worship begins. Are you that tree? Are you sunk into those waters of God's word? And notice, of course, a tree speaks of its vibrant condition, you know, the fruitfulness of it. And during the fruit-bearing season is where the most pressure comes, the threat of the sun, crippling damage from the drought. All these things threaten, and yet there's that tree producing its fruit. Its leaf is not withering, even though there's that potential of it withering. There's the idea. Just like uh, Psalm 46, where it speaks of everything falling in uh, the city of God. And it says, yet there's a river that supplies the city of God. A river that God gives it to supply it. That's what he's talking about. The word that supplies us. So that when we face the most difficult and horrible situations. The climate of our lives is so crippling. Then we're sustained by the hope of that word, by the vision of the word, by the encouragement of the, of the word, by the knowledge that we've been rescued and forgiven and we have intimacy and acceptance with God. As we've seen, then, then we become pictures we become pictures of love working itself out in, in this culture, even in the face of great wickedness. That's why, ultimately, though, we are always saddened when we see a downturn in the morality of our environment and our country. We bemoan it. We pray against it. But he's talking about that very thing, right? This is an arid place. This is a desert place. And yet the tree is producing fruit. God doesn't excuse us. And God's not wringing his hands and saying, oh no, another thing's gone by the wayside. What am I going to do? Just a greater show of my grace to make my people thrive and show their glory in the midst of what is happening around them. Brothers and sisters, this is what he does by this word. So that the environment created by the wicked cannot ultimately extinguish the righteous, even if they extinguish our very lives, you see. <laughs> so what? Right. Even in the doing of that, we gave testimony to the greatness and glory of our God that he is worthy of our giving our lives for him to make him known. This is so important when we're despairing in the face of immorality. It's just our new context for bearing fruit. Because we are trees planted by water. And there's a harsh contrast. When you get to verse 4, turns the corner 
and he's speaking about the wicked. It starts like this. Okay, so everything he does will prosper, not so the wicked. <laughs> That's the feel of the passage. All glorious and wonderful prosper, not so the wicked. You see, this ties back to verse 1. These that are drawing us after themselves, that are promising life, promising us a gospel, right? A good news. Like the serpent drawing Adam and Eve away from God, seeking to draw us away from him. And this helps us realize the nature of it. They will not stand in judgment. They will not be there in the congregation of the righteous in that day. And this is the first time the righteous is plural in this passage. Up to now, it's the single man against the company of evil. But now we see his refusal of the company of evil makes him a part of the company of the righteous. He has a community, an everlasting community, that even if the community dies physically, That community is extended through eternity. But the wicked are not part of that. What greater contrast could there be than a tree planted by water, thriving, its leaf does not wither, and chaff just blown away, dry chaff. Kinder says it's the epitome of what is weightless, rootless, and useless. That's why. Refuse. <laughs> refuse their counsel. Look where they're headed. Look what they are apart from God. But now. It's as though this solitary person of verse 1. Avoiding the company of the wicked. Taking refuge in God's word. In him. Has finally found a home and a community. A real community instead of this false community, this shadow of a community. And it is this new community that shines its light back into to gather more out of the dark community into their light. And you see the importance of the congregation of the righteous. You see the importance of belonging to the congregation in this world. To, to, to murmur the word to one another, to stimulate a mutual delight in that word, to excite each other about that word, to, this word is about the beauty of God. Well, you see, how can we think, I'm going to be a part of the community in heaven that's worshiping God, all these people praise him, but I don't want to praise him. I don't want his word. I don't want to be a part of the community. But I've got this special thing with me and God, and we're going to be okay. Doesn't work that way. Just simply doesn't work that way. I, I need to be a part of his people. I need them. They need you. We need each other to hold on and to murmur the word to one another. And what's interesting as he gets to verse 6. It's the first time that the Lord is mentioned as doing anything in this passage. 
It's called poetic delay, okay? Holding back and now, boom, let it go, all right? So the first thing that God does, he knows the way of the wicked. Notice, though, I mean the righteous. So we are the object of God's affection and action, but the wicked are the subject. That seems, oh, okay, grammar, give me a break, okay? But here's what that means. We're distinguished by those acted upon by God and those who are acting in and of themselves. See? Independent, on their own. This is the way of the wicked. The way mentioned in verse 1. Now, we see that the way of the wicked is going to go over a cliff at the end. But what distinguishes us? Only this. The Lord knows us. And he's chosen to know us. Know means to care for, to draw us, to envelop and call us to himself and to show, uh, to shine in our hearts the glory of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, the only thing that separates you and me is the Lord has chosen by his grace to know you. To know you. Otherwise, you and I would be going our own way. So there's the, there's the division. God watches over the righteous. He cares for them. And so we must give up our empty claim to independence. Running our own supposed show, which is a joke. And become the object of God's care. Become the object of God's care. And that's what the word is. I've given this illustration before, but in uh, John, he talks about uh, the uh, obedience to God and submitting yourself to the love of God in the context of obedience. And I've always given my own dad as an example of this, who's a doctor, and he would prescribe to his son whom he loves certain things to do or not to do. These were prescriptions of love. Prescriptions. If I'm going to put myself in his care, I must follow his prescriptions. Right? I must put myself in the way of this God who will care for me. Therefore, I want to give myself up to his will. I want to delight in his law and learn his His word. So... His word is a gift to those who cannot guide themselves. It's a gift to us who cannot guide ourselves. And we in helplessness would give ourselves up to him rather than haughtily in full pride saying, I don't need you. I don't need your word. Well, to close... Major question, how do we develop this delight? And I'll just be brief here. The first thing you and I have got to realize is Jesus is the only one who has delighted in the word perfectly. Okay? He's the only one who has delighted in the word perfectly. He said, my food is to do the will of my father. I've come not to do my will, but the will of my father. You see, I don't do the will of the wicked. My own will. I give my will to him. 
And so here, remember, we all begin as chaff. And you come to him as chaff. You come to him as one helpless. You come to him with all this lack of desire for him, this disdain of his word, this neglect of his word. Yes, save me, save me, rescue me from my errant desire, oh Lord Jesus. But first, you see, I have to hide myself in the acceptance that Christ has because he perfectly desired that word. So that's your protection. It's your only protection that you hide yourself in the perfect obedience of Jesus that you walk in his obedience or that you walk in the righteousness that is gifted you in Christ. He took away the punishment you and I deserve because of all of our neglect of the word of God. And so this immediately gives you an acceptance and a communion and fellowship with God as you begin now to learn how to delight. It gives you room Room to grow, room to develop, room to grow over months and years in this greater and greater delight in his word as you stand accepted in Christ's perfect obedience to the word. And then realize he gives you his very spirit, the very spirit of Christ. He's called the spirit of Christ in Romans 8. The Holy Spirit comes from Christ to enable you to have the very desires of Jesus. And I think one of the keys to desire for the word is always bear this in mind. I'm going after Christ himself. I'm looking for the beauty of Christ. Oh, Lord, reveal to me your beauty. Reveal to me your goodness. Remember Jesus on the road to Emmaus telling them, all through the scriptures about himself. And what did they say afterwards? Was our heart not burning within us? There's a prayer. Oh, Lord, may you open up the word to me. Even as I come to it dull and distracted, I don't want to be, Lord, come with me. Do this with me. As you did to those disciples on the road to Emmaus. Stir my heart in it. There's a, Kayabot painting on the Pont de la Rue. <laughs> Europe, I can't do French, but anyway, I just said that to be funny. All right, so, but it's, it's in English, it's the Europe Bridge. So here are these guys, a few just kind of in the edge of the painting. This is at the Kimball, and they're looking through girders. And they're looking down at the new railroad yards that are part of the huge renovation in Paris at the end of the 19th century. And you see a puff of smoke over here, and you can see railroad lines. I love the, the odd picture that Calibolt has of all these steel girders, admiring in one sense the incredible construction, and yet, from another sense, it seems to block the view, right? So it's a weird painting. Instead of opening up the view, the painting blocks the view. It's a great picture of all the distractions, all the lack of desire, all the circumstances, All the, everything in the world that stands between us and looking at the railroad yard, okay? But search after that. 
Say to yourself, I will, in the midst of everything I'm facing, in the midst of my lack of desire, my own inability to understand this word, I will still catch glimpses of the beauty of God. I will not turn away from that beauty. I will not quit running after that beauty. I will not stop trying to enrich my life with that beauty and conform my ways to that beauty. It is Christ we are after. That's why we go after the word. I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. Like the deer panted after the water, I pant after you. You. And isn't it interesting that he says his delight is in the law of the Lord here in chapter 1. Chapter 2, or yeah, chapter 2. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. The first is the Lord's word. The second is the Lord's Messiah. And so... Delight in his word and kiss the son. They're part of the same thing. Kiss the son by submitting to his word, giving yourself to his word. And finally, I just urge you to exposure. Expose yourself to it. Okay, we all have our stories, but I love the way it's depicted again. Calvin and Hobbes. Mom, can I have a cigarette? Sure, Calvin. I think your grandfather left some here. Just smoke outside, okay? Calvin's like, what? He's just smiling at the camera like, this is too easy, you know? Goes outside, you can imagine. He says, and and Hobbes there, his, his tiger says, your mom let you have a cigarette? He says, for a mom, sometimes she's pretty cool. And of course, His face turns red. He hacks and coughs. He feels like he's dying. And Hobbes says, you'd think this would be an easy habit to break, right? But we all know you start with something. If you've ever inhaled, as I have many times, okay, you inhale the first time, it hurts. It's like, that's not supposed to be in my lungs. I know it's not. Because it hurts. You try again. That's supposed to be fun. Oh, that hurt. (coughs) Pain. Horror. And yet I could get to the point with something like that, even go beyond its proper use moderately, to an addiction, to having it two or three packs a day, to reach every time I eat. I don't want the taste of food. I want the taste of smoke. When I get up in the morning, I want the taste of smoke. Before I go to bed, I want the taste of smoke. That's all I want is this smoke. If we can do that with a cigarette that would ultimately kill us if we overuse it, how about the Word of God? (laughs) How about the Word of God? Even then, only God's spirit will enable us. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we thank you that you mean to make us true worshipers. We thank you that your salvation stretches forth to cover all the bases 
you, you save us so that we, we do desire your word. We, we do delight in it. We, we will more and more be people who meditate, who mumble it to one another and murmur it among, amongst one another. Lord, you will do this work in us because you are truly saving us. You'll make us true worshipers who want your beauty and who recognize it in your word, though time and again, it really is hard for us to find when we first look. And in certain places, it seems even harder. And yet the treasure is there, the treasures of the glory of God who made the world. Lord, we pray, launch us on what will be an eternity of a quest to delve ever more deeply into the unlimited beauty of God. Oh, bless us, Lord, and give us energy for it. Otherwise, everything said today will mean absolutely nothing to us. Oh, bless us and change us for Jesus' sake. Amen.